0: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering, or evaluating education for health professionals, This podcast is for you.
1: Celebrating its 10th year as the premier online event for CME professionals, CME Palooza will be back in 2023 with its spring and fall events. So mark your calendars for Wednesday, April 12th and Wednesday, October 18th. CME Palooza, it's free, it's fun. And it's just plain fantastic.
0: Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Housen and this is Right Medicine. I'm here today with Dr. Diana Durham, an accreditation strategist who's worked in CME and CPD since the 1990s. Diana has served in many, many leadership roles, including for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the Veterans Health Administration. Diana's a lifelong yoga practitioner and is just an all-round incredible treasure trove of expertise. We'll be talking about the accreditation process in general and the evolution of joint accreditation. Diana also shares her perspectives on interprofessional continuing education and on creative methods of educating all the members of the healthcare team. Join us. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. I'm Alex Hausen, your host. I'm here today with Dr. Diana Durham, who's an accreditation strategist, and she has worked in CME, CE, and CPD since the 1990s. Diana has served in many, many leadership roles, including for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the Veterans Health Administration. She's a lifelong yoga practitioner and just an all-round incredible treasure trove of expertise. I'm delighted to have her on the podcast today. We're going to be talking about accreditation, and why it matters for educating all members of the healthcare team. Welcome,
1: Diana. Hi, Alex. I am delighted to be here. I've been following what you do and participating in some of your yoga classes at conferences via Zoom, as you might recall. What a treasure you are as well to bring that kind of experience to the table when so many of us are suffering during the pandemic. So where shall I start? Well, I'd be really interested in starting by telling listeners who you are and what you do. All right. I consider myself a a lifelong communicator and connector, and this is pulling together various sectors of my background. When I was a kid, I was very shy. I had to learn to act as if I am not shy. It's the old act as if, and then you make believe you're brave, and the trick will take you far. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. And I did a lot of acting when I was in high school, some in college, a lot of speech and debate, lots of competitions in college. And even got to perform on the stage at the Kennedy Center in the American College Theater Festival with the University of Virginia's Southeastern uh, winning. Yes, I got tossed around the stage uh, in a antique silk dress in sort of a rape ballet kind of thing. And uh, the play was called Volponi. And I had a very tiny little role, but that was what female actors had at that point. So I bring to the table in accreditation the perspective of where accreditation fits into education. If you think of continuing professional development, not, not everything that is done in the space of continuing professional development is accreditable, if that's a word, it's but it's the space in which a physician, a social worker, a nurse, a psychologist, a rad tech gets all their experience. That might include some internships. That might include some unpaid experiences shadowing a physician or a physical therapist or whomever. That's all part of your continuing professional development. And one of the reasons that continuing professional development and continuing medical education and continuing education in the health professions is so important is that we expect, we as patients and caregivers and you know, family members, expect our clinicians to really be up on what's going on. Sometimes it's not your physician that you get the most information from. It might be uh, you know a medical social worker. It might be an advanced practice nurse. It might actually be the office staff person or the clergy person in the hospital who can all be considered part of the of the healthcare team, the patient care team. So why accreditation is important is that accreditation, we'll take ACCME, for example, because they're very strong in this area. It provides a set of milestones. It provides a set of guidelines and kind of parameters about, think about it as a boxing ring. I know that's a weird thing. But a boxing <laughs> ring, analogy. you've got some you know, flexible, um, I'm, I'm doing this with my arms, but you've got some flexible railings on the side. And maybe you've got a coach in the background, maybe that's your mentor in your field, and you have to go in there and play by the rules. And being able to play by the rules, play fairly and play rightly, if that's a word, As is right medicine, I guess we can play rightly. We can. It's very important, because that is the piece where I really thank ACC for, ACC me for this. Back in the day, when the Senate Committee on Judiciary Affairs and 60 Minutes did a program on all the bad things about continuing medical education, largely trying to, you know, criticize doctors. But what they ended up doing, 60 Minutes especially, they criticized the feel of continuing medical education for providing vacations for doctors with some credit.
0: This was the Max Baucus and Charles Grassley letter yes. to the Senate. committee yes. Or letter to, yeah. Congress. So
1: the ACCME basically said, um, and in the other, it's, it's seven part uh, partner organizations, said, wait a minute, let us regulate ourselves. So I feel like those guidelines, which have now been revised, and largely looking at the standards for commercial support, which now became the standards for integrity and independence and yada, yada, and accredited CE, those guidelines are our protection for being able to really be a profession and being able to police and regulate our own field. And it's very important for a profession to be a profession that you are self-regulating.
0: Absolutely. So we've kind of taken a deep dive into what accreditation is and some of the history behind the accreditation process and and how accreditation came to be. So I want to kind of back up just Uh a little bit and ask you how you actually find your way into accreditation because as we know, those of us who end up in this field do so often by stumbling and falling down the rabbit hole. How did you get here?
1: Well, I you know, I don't know whether it's, is it a rabbit hole that Alice in Wonderland went down, 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 down. In, yeah. yeah. I'm also thinking of Raquel Welch in that was, was that movie called The Incredible Journey when she was traveling through the human body. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was only two years old when I watched that, of course. Yeah. So, There's a cultural there reference. There we go, a cultural <laughs> landmark. So a lot of people that I know got into continuing education because they are project managers or their meeting planners. Some of them got into it because they had a position in, say, their medical school or a specialty society, a hospital, where they it came to be known that they were really good at organizing things. And I actually got into continuing education because when I was in my PhD program at University of Southern California in the School of Education, I did an internship with the state education department. I did another one with a branch of the federal government on planning content and programs for professionals who work with le- kids with learning disabilities and other other kinds of disabilities. And because I learned the structure of that kind of what the education field was doing at the federal and state level, I got tapped by a graduate school colleague who was a assistant vice president at Good Samaritan Hospital Los Angeles saying, we have an opening for a director of continuing medical education, and I said, Linda, I don't know anything about medical vocabulary. She said, You're an English major. You can learn that. You know how to organize. <laughs> and you know about accreditation. Yes. I did know about it in other fields. And they're very similar. You know, it's it's that whole plan do study act model. And it has very much the same kind of structure within almost all accreditations that we look at in healthcare. It's a very similar structure to what we see with ACCME. So what is that structure? Can you talk a little bit about what the structure of accreditation is and what it entails? The ACCME has a set of criteria and also a couple of policies that you have to respond to. When an organization applies to become ACCME accredited, and for those people who don't know all the acronyms, it's the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education. And it's made up of seven partner organizations. And if I had to recite them all, I'd probably... Well, oh, be... that's okay. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, that's a good idea. We'll, put, we'll figure that yeah. out. <laughs> but the American Medical Association is one of them. So the American Medical Association is, is a major partner, and so is the Federation of State Medical Boards of Medical, something or other. So the, the potential provider of continuing medical education has to uh, fill out a letter of intent. They also have to do an accreditation application. That's called a self-study. And the self study is a reflective process. We and I—I I, I was a surveyor for the ACCME for a little over twenty-two years, and I just stopped recently. I think that's yeah, that yeah, you mentioned that. So, uh, but awesome. I really, really treasure the fact that the ACCME uh, invests in and trains its surveyors, so that we feel like a an important cadre, and we also get a lot of really good training and information on their thinking. So um, the parts of the. Application are documented at accme.org and you look under accreditation and what is accreditation and so forth. It takes you through essentially it's the plan do study act model and it you're asked about your mission. How do you document that you're true to your mission? What are the results that you're looking for? Have you gotten results? If you haven't gotten results, what are you doing about that? There's there's a lot of different ways that organizations respond to, to that. As a surveyor, I'm not really supposed to comment as what I see as a surveyor, but as a, as a member of a provider team, I'm working with University of California San Francisco office of CME right now. As a member of a provider team, what I think the ACCME is asking you to do is really look at your own processes, look at the content and how you gather that content, make sure that it is free of bias, make sure that your speakers, planners, authors are not connected in any way to any ineligible companies, which we used to call commercial support, but it's basically an ineligible companies language right now. And then how do, you, how do you assess from your learners what it is they need? What's the gap? And then how do you assess that your activity, your course, your, your enduring material, your webinar, whatever it was, actually made a difference? And it could be, you know, did they acquire more knowledge? Did they acquire some new strategies and competencies? Were there actually, and here's the holy grail, were there actually patient outcomes that can be documented? For example, yeah. did uh, in a course that we were, I was looking at the other day, the rate of teen pregnancy in a particular area seems to have gone down. And it may not be that it's directly related to that course, but it might have helped. So the ACCME is not necessarily looking for research level data, but it's asking you to look at, did you make a difference? Right. That's the point. And you use the word cadre, so I can tell you're an
0: English major. Yes, I was. <laughs> Always an English major. <laughs> right. There you go. Yeah, I think it's a really succinct kind of overview of the micro level of the accreditation yeah. process because not all listeners will necessarily be uh, aware yeah. of that. What I do want to ask is, you know, you've been in this field for, for some time. What kind of changes? More than 30 years. Yeah. More than 30 years. So- it, you know, thinking about the things that you've just talked about in terms of making change and making a difference to, you know, those different levels of outcomes that we talk about, whether you're using Moore's outcomes levels or or some other kind of framework, what kind of shift have you seen in the activities that are out there in terms of the extent to which they are able to make a difference on? Clinical practice, on competencies, on skills, yeah. and maybe at that wider level of
1: you know patient outcomes and community level outcomes. Is there anything that stands out? Yeah, um, I'll say that in my own personal terms of my own personal journey in continuing education in health professions, I began really considering when I was at Good Samaritan Hospital, my first CME job, the fact that many of the other people, for example, like you're doing a course on endocrinology, the certified di- diabetes educators who mostly are nurses but with additional training make a huge difference in patient care. Mm-hmm. So that was my early introduction. My my CME chairman was a, a diabetic uh, endocrinologist and I got to know some of the people on his team. Began to understand that what a PA does, a physician assistant does and what a, an advanced practice nurse does contributes to the team. And I think one of the best forms of education to look at the healthcare team. The members of the healthcare team is when you happen to go to what's called a tumor board, which is a regularly scheduled series in ACCME speak. And a tumor board is a cancer case conference where you're looking at the uh, one or more cases of a patient and you've got individuals from all over the hospital and who take, make a difference in the care of that patient. It's one of the purest forms of education that I know. And I have been privileged to be a part of, uh, you know, a number of them and to, to also be able to observe the different contributions that members of the healthcare team make. In addition, while we were, while I was at Good Samaritan, we had the riots in Los Angeles and mm-hmm. we had a CME activity that included everybody on the team that dealt with what was Good Samaritan hospitals, I and mean, in Good Samaritan's right in downtown LA. What was our response? How do we handle it? What could we do differently? How do we need to be better prepared? And what were the issues be- behind, you know, behind the riots? So that was another example of something that was – it wasn't exactly patient-centered unless you think of the hospital as the patient in a way. What was our living, breathing response, you know? So, okay, what have I seen? I have seen a trend toward, uh, at least in in terms of the coming together of different accrediting bodies, of looking at – giving giving hospitals, healthcare systems, specialty societies, medical schools, a mechanism through joint accreditation for interprofessional CE. A mechanism for beginning to consider that it's not all the doctors. It's not all the you know the healing hands of the doctors. The healing hands of the doctors. Somebody's putting the the tools or the chart into the hand of the doctor or guiding them to you know what's the status of a patient. What's the what's the data coming in. What's the patient said to the, nurse, the PT. Someone else is helping. And at the VA, the Veterans Health Administration, one of the most valuable things that I got to experience was. I actually had an office, a geographically located office in the VA in Long Beach, the hospital there, even though my position was national and I was dealing with some 19 or 20 different accreditations in the health profession. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, I had a wonderful team and that team goes on under the leadership of somebody else who was part of my team at the time. So I'm glad that they're thriving. They're really thriving. They're great and great people. Hello, everybody out there. <laughs> so the pres- being at a hospital, being in a hospital- And when you need to find out something about well, what do doctors of optometry need that's different from a medical doctor, an allopathic medical doctor, or an osteopathic medical doctor? What does an optometrist need? Well, you can go, you can you can call or you can email and say hi, Doctor Dang. I I am Diana Durham. I'm working on accreditation, and I'd like to see if we can do something for doctors of optometry who work for the VA and for your patients. What can we do together? So being able to reach out to some of those people and learn how they're training their residents. And, you know, learning what their steps are in patient care is pretty amazing. And I, I heartily recommend if a person is able to get some experience in a hospital, whether it's part of a healthcare system or just a freestanding hospital, you learn so much about how healthcare actually works. And that is so important. I think one of the things that I hear from people and
0: see in some discussions on on social media and so on is, and you put it so nicely, those steps in patient care. What is it in practice that clinicians and members of the healthcare team are actually doing in their sort of day to day work mm-hmm. to, you know, improve the lives of patients? If you haven't worked in a hospital yeah. or in a healthcare system or even been a patient or had a family member who's a patient, then sometimes it can be really challenging to kind of conceptualize what the work is that members of the healthcare team do. And, and you've talked about that phrase you've mentioned that phrase a few times now, members of the healthcare team. And I know that accreditation is evolving toward joint accreditation. So let's talk a little bit, because I know that you have deep expertise in this area. Let's talk a little bit about how joint accreditation is different from accreditation in general Mm -hmm. and how different members of the healthcare team can expect to benefit from
1: activities that are jointly accredited. Well, the Joint Accreditation for Interprofessional Continuing Education got started by three wonderful uh, women professionals, Kate Renier of the ACCME, Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, Dimitra Chavalos of the American Council for... I'm, I'm stumbling here. ACPE, it's the uh, Pharmacy Education, and the oh, okay. The ANCC, American Nurses Credentialing Center, uh, with Kathy Chappell. And each of these... Professionals occupies a slightly different role in their organization, but each of them saw that there was a, there was an opportunity to make things better by coming together. And so they kind of joined at the hip. And I've had the privilege of moderating discussions where they're talking about how that happened at several conferences and mm-hmm. the organizations that they have welcomed into that fold. First of all, if you apply for joint accreditation, you must be able to document that you are actually Looking at continuing education for the team and by the team. So it's not just let's do a conference on diabetes and we'll invite all the certified diabetes educators. No, they have to be on the planning committee and they have to be faculty. And if you have breakout groups and you want to focus on team process, you'd better not have a team, you know, a breakout group of doctors and a breakout room of nurses and then breakout room of those nurses who are uh, certified diabetes educators. You put them together in a team setting. There are some activities that have been adopted widely by medical schools and other, and healthcare systems that really focus on this. And I'd love to talk about those if we have times. One is called mm-hmm. sports rounds, and you may, may well know that. But the, the three, go back to Kate Renier, Kathy Chapel, and Dimitri Travalos, of the, the, three, the three musketeers who started the joint accreditation. Joint accreditation welcomed in the American Academy of Physician Assistants, the Council on Optometric Practitioner Education which is part of ARBO, which is the Associated Regulatory Boards of Optometry. And we can double-check this with the notes. It can give you something on that. hundred percent. Yeah, American Psychological Association and the Associated uh, Boards of Social Work, and their program is called ACE, A-C-E, Accredited Continuing Education, I think. They've also welcomed in the American Dental Association's regulatory process and the Commission on Dietetic Registration, which is for registered dietitians and dietitian techs and then recently they also welcomed in the board of certified athletic trainers boc which is the hardest one oh, remember really? it's quite long, because there's no the word athletic is not in everybody calls them the boc but it's the board of certified certification for athletic trainers mm-hmm. i originally thought that that one was a long shot but i am beginning to see more and more organizations where they have strong orthopedic and physical therapy programs actually mm-hmm. you know acquiring that accreditation Well, actually,
0: you know, my my head immediately went to the athletic heart and Mm -hmm. so cardiology.
1: Oh, yeah. Good point. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because you're looking for a a physician who's a cardiologist or an interventional cardiologist may say, you need to do more of this, but then having a team that connects you with someone who's going to help you make that happen is super important. It's like my orthopedist saying, Diana, I'm assigning you to physical therapy and you're going to be working on this knee thing. And uh you you have to come in twice a week because you're not gonna get better if you don't, right? So that's right. my you know, my physical therapy. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, these these accreditations, if you apply if an organization applies for joint accreditation, and we just typically call it J A or joint accreditation, they are applying in effect for the first three, the the basic three, ACCME, A C P E and A N C C the nursing one. And if you that then you can add on the others without a separate application, there is a separate fee. And there may be separate documentation that has to occur. For example, the American Psychological Association may have some requirements that you need to fulfill in terms of your reporting, just like the pharmacy organization, ACPE has some additional requirements for reporting that, you know, can be somewhat time consuming, but that's how they roll. That's how they work. So, you know, you, we periodically have um, the opportunity to listen to joint accreditation put on its own webinars. A lot of times they're free. Some of them have been relatively low cost. And at many of the conferences that you and I go to, Alex, we have times when we can hear people who experience adding these different other organizations who represent members of the healthcare mm-hmm. to their team. At the upcoming alliance, Now I won't say upcoming because by the time this goes, the alliance will be over. But in the February 2023 alliance, there is a physician who heads up the CE effort at the University of Kentucky School of Medicine. It's my home state. So uh, her name is, uh, Dr. Kimberly Northrup and she and Laura Wirtz, who is head of CE at Children's Hospital, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, just down mm-hmm. the street from Kentucky. Yeah. Doing something together. Right across the river. That's all right. Right across the river. Yep. And, uh, I'm doing something with it at the March Society for Academic C- CME conference, which is actually going to be virtual and after the conference in April. So that might be an opportunity. Julie White from Boston University School of Medicine, who just became uh, joint accredited. And Kurt Snyder. I worked with Kurt Snyder on Mm -hmm. getting Stanford's joint accreditation. That was a key thing that I did when I was at Stanford, worked with him on that. And then also Tim Peters, who is my current director at UC San Francisco, where we are working on joint accreditation. So we're doing a a free-for-all panel discussion ask any questions you want, and we'll tell you what we went through kind of session. So I'm kind of looking forward to that because I really want it to be very interactive and let people, you know, ask all their questions.
0: Yeah. And it's, it sounds like it's almost a kind of coming full circle in terms of, you know, the, I remember some of those, or I remember being at conferences with some of those initial conversations around, you know, the genesis of joint accreditation. Yeah. And now it seems that, you know, there's a much more fulsome approach and response to joint accreditation but I'm curious if you're seeing more education programs and activities that are jointly accredited
1: Yeah well you would the the providers first of all it's uh, in, in earlier versions of accreditation and there still are a few healthcare accreditations where you can apply course by course by course. For accreditation to the national organization or the state organization oh, okay. that's becoming less and less in what I'm seeing that in- sounds burdensome it is very burdensome, yeah, and sometimes it works if you're only going to do one course that involves physical therapists. do you have to go out and get you know a national accreditation for that? No, you can apply to your state board in most cases, and you know whatever state the conference is going to occur in mm-. Mm-hmm. For an organization like the the huge healthcare system, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, which I think is must be our largest healthcare system in the country, mm-hmm. has you know something like 120 hospitals, and it's just it's just as vast. Uh, when I was there, we had over 25,000 physicians in the system, like 96,000 wow. 96, nurses. I could keep going, but I I know that uh, I don't have all the exact numbers now, but I know that the team that is still there, functioning beautifully without me. Thank goodness is doing a wonderful job in adding additional accreditations that are not in the joint accreditation because they see a need. But with a healthcare system, there's a responsibility. In most cases, they see it as a responsibility and a benefit to make sure that the people that they employ are able to get all their credit or almost all their credit internally. And the advantage to the healthcare system, the advantage to the hospital or the healthcare system is that. Is that people aren't having to leave to go off to do a course or ask for money to spend at a hotel. When at the VA, we first got the accreditation for occupational therapists, which is AOTA. I had all these physical, we did some kind of big announcement with the marketing team to roll out to our staff and sort of the occupational therapy person that was my touch point person helped too. And I got contacted by all these occupational therapists saying, wait a minute, Dr. Durham, are you saying, I don't have to take vacation time. I don't have to foot the, you know, the bill for the registration myself and hope I'm going to get reimbursed. I don't have to uproot my family if I'm taking them with me and and be away for a week and go to this conference. This is all pre-pandemic when things weren't really being done virtually very much. And I said, yes, that is correct. Because now your grand rounds, which you have with maybe occupational therapy and physical therapy and, you know, we have medicine docs. Those can be accredited for AOTA, and you can get your almost all your credits right here with the VA, and it won't cost oh, you oh, no. a thing. Yeah, so that's great savings to our taxpayers too. If you think about it from the point of view of, of of a taxpayer, which we we are taxpayers, but more more to the point, think about the veterans who ultimately talk about patient care. The ultimate benefit on that is, let's say I have a favorite uh, a favorite occupational therapist uh, we're at Delworth, the Long Beach VA. He or she is not going to have to leave for a week and give me a substitute because they can go to take their course while they're at work. It's built into their work time. And if I'm a veteran, it's related to veteran cases, frequently seen problems with patients, psychologists, for example, also American Psychological Association. What are the psychologists and the psychiatrists and the mental health professionals in the VA seeing? Well, of course, they're seeing veterans. And if you go to a conference in almost any place, there might be a session or two on veterans, but it's not focused entirely on veterans. And this gives right. you that laser focus to really look at your patients. And that to me is is a huge value, a huge outcome value. It also had the yeah. benefit of making, at least with the occupational therapists in the case that I was talking about, made them feel like we valued them like we saw them. You are as important as the physicians because we are going to get your accreditation for you and make sure you get the training you need. And that we can plan, we can plan it together and you're part of the team to plan it.
0: And so that takes us to, and you've touched on this a little bit, the whole premise of joint accreditation is really to kind of address interprofessional education. Mm-hmm. And you said it yourself earlier, not just educating different members of the healthcare team in breakout rooms or in you know separate silos, but actually creating education content that is developed by members of the healthcare team for members of the healthcare Mm -hmm. team in an interdisciplinary or an interprofessional kind of framework. This is something Mm -hmm. obviously that, you know, Lawrence Sherman talks about all the time. He was on the the podcast a couple of seasons. I know Lawrence. Right. Yeah. Everyone knows Lawrence, right? We worked on the mentorship program together for the Alliance for a while back. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I benefited from that many, many, many years ago, Uh way back in, well, a long time ago. A few years ago. (laughs) (laughs) So can we talk just a little bit about where you see interprofessional education going? How is Mm -hmm. that evolving? And what are some of the creative ways that you're seeing all members, you know, of educating all members Mm -hmm. of the healthcare team?
1: Well, a couple of the strategies that, that I've seen happening in a number of the organizations and number of the medical schools that I've worked with recently and I've worked with a number on a, a kind of ad hoc consulting basis as well as you know, my work with San Francisco there are some some leaders in a type of approach and the first one I'm going to mention is called the Schwartz Center for Compassionate Healthcare. What you'll hear about is something called Schwartz Rounds and it's it's SCHWArtZ, that kind of Schwartz. Mm-hmm. And the email, the address, which we'll put in the notes, is theschwartzcenter.org. dot org. So theschwartzcenter dot org, okay. all one word. This is a an approach to supporting the healthcare professional in getting through what they have to get through. Because and and it was particularly important, I think, a particularly wonderful tool during the pandemic, but it got started oh, yeah. before that. The first ones that I was aware of were at children's hospitals, but they're definitely at a, in a lot of different organizations. And the approach is interprofessional. I've seen a really good checklist used by a professor at, at Yale School of Medicine on what she always wants to cover. And it's got a little bit of a support group kind of context, but it, it's also the team is teaching, sharing, guiding one another, the team members. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There might be a chair who might be a physician or a psychologist. It could be, it could be any number of people. It could be a nurse practitioner for that matter. Somebody administrative who makes it happen and makes sure that, you know, that, that there's a, an email that goes out or the agenda or whatever, or what's the case we're going to talk about? Or there might be times when they're simply saying, you know, bring your concerns about similar types of cases. Here's an example, but we're open to other kinds. So the Schwartz Center is a, with the Schwartz rounds concept is a really, really nice kind of grand rounds. Uh, program and it's content based, but it's not lecture based. And I love, mm-hmm. I love that. Also like simulations, because uh, and I'll tell you my personal experience with a simulation, I have a, a background in theater, as I mentioned, and I, in my doctoral dissertation, which was not albeit in, in, in continuing education and healthcare professions, it was in continuing education, having to do with classroom teachers who teach, mm-hmm who are called regular kids that's not such a there's no such thing as a regular kid if you ask me and also kids with learning disabilities or who learn differently learning style differences and i used role play i used video i trained people in several different ways and then i had a control group and my my findings of course this was years ago my findings were that people tended to learn better when they are able to observe a positive model and not have to role play because then the you know, the the, the um, stage fright and uh, what's that other thing they call it you're you're worrying about how people will perceive you if you're in the right. role play the role play is really great for making things maybe people aware of things but may mm-hmm. not be the best way to teach somebody a skill observing and then letting them do covert behavior rehearsal inside themselves saying okay i see this doctor i see this therapist this psychologist talking to this patient in this way how does that compare to my practice and then maybe there's an activity in which you do that. And I've seen some really good things recently that I was working with Yale and I saw some good things that they were doing with simulation and also with role play in an effective way for making people aware. But you can't just do a role play. You need to have a discussion about it and share, you know, whether it's on Zoom or WebEx or, or whatever, or whatever, Riverside, or if it's in person, sometimes we can still be able to see the person again. We, we need to have that dialogue, and that's part of what makes it interprofessional. I mm-hmm. want to hear from a social worker. I want to hear from, you know, I want to hear from the nurse. The nurses, the nurses are not just the hands of the physician. The nurses are actual professionals in their own right with a distinct set of practice, you know, guidelines. Oh, well, you're talking to a former nurse, so you don't need uh, to make yeah. that argument to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, my, my close friend who hired me into my first CME job at, uh, as director of physician education, at Good Samaritan Hospital, she was a nurse in the same PhD program that I went to at USC. And we are lifelong friends. We've known each other 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a group of healthcare professionals. In this case, right now, there, there's one group that's, that's all women, but it's not It's not an organization. About eight of us, and sometimes it's four or six or two of us, get together approximately once a month and have lunch. Mm-hmm. And not some so of them cool. are, most of them are retired. I am one of the few that's not retired, but a lot of them have gotten into other areas that they always wanted to explore, and they're a major resource for me. So part of what I love about continuing meduca- medical education and continuing education in the health professions, because most of these women are nurses yeah. by, by background, I love being able to tap into them and say, well, how would you handle this? Here's what I'm facing. You know, what do you think? How can I talk to this doctor on this committee that, you know, maybe maybe you have a strategy that I can learn? And I think that's part of what interprofessional education allows people to do sometimes is that you are, maybe you're not directly asking someone in short rounds, how do you deal with this hostile patient or, host, you know, patient member who's scared? Maybe you're listening to someone else's story about how they handled it and you're learning through covert behavior rehearsal, in fact, right? I got way off the topic, but you know. No, I don't think you
0: did. I I haven't heard that term covert internal behavior observation before, but as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, reflection in action or reflection on action, that nice distinction Mm -hmm. that Donald Shin makes in the reflective practitioner. Mm -hmm. But that does kind of raise a question for me. And I just have a couple of questions left because I know we're coming to the end of our, our time. One question is when we're talking about this kind of interprofessional focus whether we're talking about education that has a virtual component or an in-person component, it does, I imagine, require a different kind of educator in the sense that, you know, you're talking about dialogue within and among team members. So you need Mm -hmm. some kind of facilitator who is able to make that dialogue, that cross-dialogue work. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing in terms of people rising up to meet the demands of this kind
1: of role? Well, I think that's an opportunity for continuing education professionals. And I'll tell you that one of the things that I loved the most that I did when I participated in at Stanford was during, at the very beginning of the pandemic, there was, it was seen as a need that we needed to have something to pull people together and continue the dialogue. And we came up with something called CME Live. And we did that in 2020 in August. Yeah, that was great. 21. That's where I met you, I think, right? Yeah. So that's right. one of the things that we we had, we had a concept that we borrowed, I think, from ACCME and others called the homeroom facilitator. And I had the pleasure of working with all the homeroom facilitators and some of them, and one of them, two of them I'm going to the Alliance with were traveling together to get to DC from California. They really went to town on it and one of them, she had been given the name of her room. This is uh, Lisa McDonald-Reyes, who was at the USC School of Pharmacy as their deputy director for CPD. So Lisa took the name of her room was the farm. And she did a whole theme thing. Nice. She had a background. She had tools. She had, you know, hose, and rakes, and things like that. And it was, it was very creative. And I, I don't, I think that's partly her personality, but I don't think there's any training on that. But I do think That one of the areas that we should look at as continuing professional development people is what skills do we need? And facilitator skills are very important. I think we probably, and I tell myself this too, I need to listen more. I think reflective listening is incredibly important. And if I'm again, when I'm facilitating this group of uh, folks who had joint accreditation for a while, just got joint accreditation and applying for joint accreditation in April with uh, SACME, I need, as the facilitator, to be able to pull things out of what they've said and then loop it back around to something, some, some thread. Uh, you know, you can't just go in with a whole set of yes. questions. You have to listen to the person and see with their, where they're going with their with their answers. Oh, 100%. That's a way of honoring what, you know, why did you ask them to be there in the first place, right? So I've seen some of these really good examples. And I, I mentioned Schwartz rounds, which I got to discover because of um, the Children's Hospital Louise Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford. Mm-hmm. But I also learned about Project Echo. Do you know about Project Echo, the Echo? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, 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 I don't know, whether you've had someone from there on the podcast. The Echo Institute is now, is jointly accredited also. But I did some ex- exploration on behalf of Stanford. We did some huge Echo projects, and that's an incredible story. It was founded by a physician. I think he may have been an emergency physician or maybe a family practice physician. At the University of New Mexico School of Medicine, where my friend Ellen Cosgrove was then the, the associate dean or assistant dean for CME. And she's now at Albany Medical College. So she's up in New, upstate New York. I have to go visit her there now. But, but they created Project ECHO precisely because there are all these remote areas in New Mexico yeah. where there's no way in heck that the PA and the physicians and the nurses are going to be able to travel to Albuquerque to go to a Grand Rounds or even a half-day conference. That's. It's not always a matter of they're going to lose money because their, you know, their patients won't be seen and no one will be paying anything. They can't leave that healthcare gap in that community. Exactly. Yes.
0: Yeah. Actually, we live not too far from
1: Roslyn, yeah. where they filmed the. I know. The yes. With the camel on the side. I love that. Yeah. Well, Northern yeah. Exposure. I, I was just beginning in in continuing medical education when that was going on, and I remember one of the episodes. Dealt with how the primary care physician who was like the only healthcare practitioner in town, how was he going to go to a conference? And I don't know whether he was going to try to go to going to Seattle or maybe Anchorage or Juneau or where, but it was like, it was like a major act of Congress for him to be able to leave the town. And that's kind of like what the, how Echo project Echo got started. I really commend, recommend to your listeners that they look into uh, the Echo Institute and it's, we can give them that website too. But it's basically. Yes, we'll make sure to put that in the. Sh- in the yeah, show notes. I won't recite yeah. it. It's worth looking into. And even if an organization or a CME practitioner isn't ready to start an Echo program, they might be able to be in touch with someone who's not too far from them, or even in their state, and collaborate. And I think that that would be a great way to learn at the feet of masters. You know, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I have one question left. Yeah. And thank you for bringing up, uh, Project Echo and that, that, that kind of hub and spoke model that they, yeah. they operate to great. create and maintain education for clinicians who are kind of white. You know, it's a very distinct geographical yeah. area, isn't it? One final question. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times the predominance of women in this field. And so I'm curious, you know, this is not something that we that we talked about but it is a very female heavy yeah field and i'm wondering if you are seeing changes or challenges there in terms of the composition of continuing medical education continuing education and what younger women what advice you would give to younger women who are entering the field
1: oh entering the field of continuing education yeah I think I would make, tell them, I mean, I'm thinking about the areas where, where I am not so strong and that would be, I would suggest to them to become very tech savvy. I know you recently had uh J-Zona Alberta yes, from uh, Stanford on, and Stanford. she is a wonder, a wonder kind. She's just amazing. I learned yes. things from her. I hope she learned some things from me from terms of historical perspective too, but she's just amazing. The, some of the people that I mentor, I have a small team of people that I mentor Unofficially, it's you know not for pay, it's not coaching, professional coaching, just folks I touch base with and stay in touch with and try to connect with jobs occasionally if I see something happening. Um I'm seeing more men. Not all men, but um I think that the the technology it's not that you have to become an expert on a particular type of technology. It's working with technologies and even things like Excel spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. Help you to overcome a fear, which I think a lot of women, especially in my in my age group, have of of things that relate to engineering, mathematics, uh, computers, and whatnot. And one of the nice things about my my group of folks that I that I mentor is that they are more technologically savvy than I am, and they often help me with things. How do I do this? <laughs> right. So, but so I think that's something that the CE professionals could. Really benefit from, from some training. I know we do at the Alliance, for example, there's a number of leadership things. There's a number of things on earning your CHCP, which is a, a certification in healthcare as a healthcare professional. I think those are really important to be able to do if you can. If you don't have the time to do that, in a lot of places, there are, there are state organizations, regional organizations in California. We have one called the Southern California Medical Education Council or SECMAC, which is a council right. mm-hmm. in uh, the mid Atlantic area. There's MACME. So uh Medical Mid Atlantic Alliance for Continuing Education. Recently the Alliance has built a, a network uh, under Jan Schultz, they the president, they mm-hmm. built a network finally with these groups because there used to be kind of a you know, standoffing thing going on and now sure. there's much like collaboration, yeah. which needs to be happening because you want your local organization to support you, but you also like the national organization has it can provide some resources. Some people go into doing a lot of project management courses. I know there's some very good ones out there. At the VA, we saw a lot of that. And I think that was partly because you might want to move into a different area, a different office. Like you might want to be, maybe you want to go and work as a project manager in the office of telehealth or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so your skills might be transferable to that. I think professionals need to do a lot of reading. And I recommend that they also listen to your podcast, and there's a couple of other podcasts that I think are really important. I follow Dr. Peter Hotez on on linkedin and see what he's up to, and some of the other healthcare professionals that I admire there's also now i'm I'm not a physician, so I haven't taken part in this, but there's a physician named Dr. Sasha Shillacut who does some wonderful things with women's oh patients. yes, yeah, she does the brave enough that's right women's conference, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to have her on the show, yeah. Another person that uh, I don't think she has a podcast, but I've worked with her. She's, we're currently co-chairs with Dr. Richard Wiggins from University of Utah, Dr. Shanice Reese Queen, who is at oh, yes. the University uh-huh. of Maryland. She, yeah. uh, she yeah. has some really good programs that she's done a couple of times at different conferences on being your best self. And it's more, it's very oriented toward, you know, to women. And it doesn't matter what your age is. But it's uh, kind of like being brave enough. I forget the name of it exactly, but it's a good time for reflection. Yeah. I will I will check it out. Yeah. I would also recommend people look into narrative medicine, just doing a search on narrative. Yeah. And uh, the person that I know that I learned the most from is actually out of uh, Kaiser Permanente, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And I will find the notes, uh, the name of that. I was planning to tell you that, and I'll, I'll find that name too. She's really been to one of her workshops. It was very special. So... That sounds wonderful. Yeah.
0: We have to end the the conversation, I'm afraid, because uh, of time, but I know from our previous conversations, we could take this in so many different directions. (laughs) Diana, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with listeners of Bright Medicine.
1: Thank you so much. Namaste. Namaste.
0: If you're like me and see yourself as a lifelong learner who loves connection with other CME professionals, come and check out what Right Medicine offers in terms of community and courses. And I'd love to hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. And if you like the podcast or a particular episode, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your colleagues and peers. There's a link in the show notes to help you do all of these things. See you next time.